Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Please check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. Please take out your Bibles and turn with me to Romans chapter 4. We'll be uh, reading verses 15 through 17. So Romans chapter 4, 15 through 17. Let us come before the Lord and pray for the reading and the preaching of his word. Lord God, we thank you so much for the privilege to be able to come together as a church family, that you have called us to be a part of this pure, peculiar institution, that you have united us with all of our different backgrounds and all of our different experiences, that you have united us in one family in Christ. And I pray, Lord God, that as we grow together, Lord, that our hearts and minds would be open to receive from you what it is you would have us to receive from your word, that our minds would be sharp, our hearts would be open to the truth, and that you would use your word to continue to shape us and change us more and more into the image of Christ. I pray, Lord God, that this worship service would glorify you in every way possible, Lord, that it would be fitting in your sight. We give you the praise, honor, and glory. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Romans chapter 4, beginning in verse 15. And the word of the sovereign Lord reads, For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence things that do not exist. This is the word of the Lord. Pastor of Grace Community Church and author John MacArthur once wrote, we cannot sin beyond God's grace because as wicked and extensive as our sin might be or become, they will never approach the greatness of His grace. So promises are an important part of all of our lives. I don't know if you realize it or not, but we all live in our lives by promises. Your marriage between you and your spouse is a promise that you would love each other and care for each other as long as you both shall live. It is a promise, a promise that, that seems to not last as long as it did before in our time. But it's a promise nonetheless. Your job is also a promise. You promise to do work that's assigned to you, and your, your employer promises to compensate you for your time. Sometimes that promise is good and profitable for both, and sometimes that promise isn't quite so good and 
profitable. Your contract that you signed when you bought your car was a promise that the dealer would let you take that car home and it would be yours. And it's your promise that you would then turn around and pay the bill. This can be a good promise for both the dealership and the, and the, the person who drives the car, but sometimes it isn't. The extended warranty you purchase on your car is a promise that the manufacturer um, or the warranty company itself would, would fix your car if it breaks, which is something that many of us want. When we buy cars, we buy the extended warranty. Why? Because we want the peace of mind that comes with that promise, that we would know that if we got into a situation with our car, that they're there to fix it. That's why you put your money in the bank because they promise to keep it safe. That's why your best friend is your best friend, is because they promise to be there for you no matter what happens, and you for them. You might not have, made, might not have actually written out an agreement for a promise, but that's implicit in that kind of friendship, is, is to be there for one another. We live every day by promises. We make promises, and we take other people at their promises. And we know that there are some promises that are more sure than others. Some promises are more reliable than other promises because some of those who make those promises are more reliable than others. In fact, we know for a fact that if we invite 10 friends to meet together at a certain place in a certain time and if they all promise to be there, that you know probably by experience which one of those who will actually be there on time is promised and which ones will probably be late. You know which friends that you can lend money to and which ones you know that it's probably best to just give it as a gift, right? Because you know what that promise, what the quality of that promise is. Right? You know that some promises of some companies are better than others. That's why you, we have certain brands that we like because they make better products than others, or at least they stand behind them. That's why certain products have higher values than, than others. That's why certain cars, by the way, are worth more money. There are certain brands that you know that you're going to spend more money on. Why? Because they're known for their promise. They are found to be dependable in the quality of their vehicle and also the service that stand behind it. Some promises, as we have experienced in our life, are more sure than others. But why is that? What makes some promises more believable than others? What makes a promise a guarantee. Because really, that's what we're after. I mean, that's what we want, is we do want guarantees. My hope is that, my hope is that, that the promise my wife made me is a guarantee that she's going to be here no matter what. And I think she hopes for the same thing. Right? We buy certain brands of, of tools as men. Why? Because why? It comes with a lifetime guarantee. That really hits home with us. That's what we want. We want promises that are as good as guarantees. We want to make promises. We want promises that, that we know that are, are dependable. But what makes, what's the quality that makes a promise a guarantee? The promise for it to be a guarantee needs two basic things. The one who makes the promise needs to be both trustworthy, which means that they, are, they have the character and the desire to keep the promise and that they're capable of keeping the promise. 
that they are trustworthy, meaning that they'll do everything in their power to do what is right, that they have a desire and an inclination at all costs to keep their promise. Their character is as such that you can be confident that they will give all that they have in order to keep their promise to you. They're trustworthy. And then secondly, they're capable of keeping their promise. They have the ability, they have the resources to do what they promise to do no matter what. They have the capacity to follow through. And we know that the value of any promise, the value of any guarantee is determined by both of these things. Because it doesn't matter if someone has the capacity to keep a promise if you can't trust them. I mean, we've had experiences with companies, big companies typically who have who make promises. They, give, they promise you the moon until you become a customer, right? But then when you try to get them to stand behind their product or, get the, or support you, how they promise to support you, suddenly they give you the runaround. Suddenly there's a bunch of hoops for you to jump through. Suddenly you're on the phone for two and a half days just to talk to a human being. We've all been there. You find out that the company's capable of keeping the promise. They have the money. They have the resources. They just don't want to do it. They just don't want to spend the money. They're just trying to discourage you so that you go away. That's how all the major corporations seem to work nowadays. That's why you have to almost become a screaming maniac on the phone before you finally get somewhere. But by the same token, it doesn't matter if someone is trustworthy and sincerely wants to keep their promise to you if they don't have the capacity to keep the promise. In effect, it's an empty promise. We know a lifetime warranty is, is only as good as a company who can be around for a lifetime. Right? A lifetime guarantee is only a, ti- a lifetime gu- guarantee given by a tiny little startup company with very little working capital really is a hope and a guess. Not so much a guarantee, because if the worst thing happens to them, they are not capable of keeping their promise, even if they really, really, really want to. And we've all experienced being let down by people. We've all been experienced being let down by organizations and companies who have made promises, who truly want to keep their promise, but in the end, somehow, they just didn't have the ability or the capability to keep that promise. I mean... Your kids will sincerely promise to you till the cows come home that they won't do that again. But sometimes you find they don't have the capacity to keep that promise. For a promise to be certain, a promise has, and for a promise to be guaranteed, one has to make, the one who makes the promise has to be both trustworthy and also capable, powerful enough to keep the promise. And that's what we see in Romans chapter 4. God is both trustworthy and willing to keep his promise to us. And he is capable and powerful enough to keep his promise. In fact, his promise is guaranteed to us. So turn with me to Romans chapter 4, beginning in verse 15. Paul writes, For the law brings wrath. But where there is no law, there is no transgression. And right out of the gate, the first thing we need to see is the word for. And what we know about the word for is that it's a conjunction, which means that what is being said is connected to what has already been said. 
And what that tells us that there is a context that we need to keep in mind here. And I want you to understand, I do know that we talk about this a lot. We talk about the importance of context a lot. We talk a lot about grammar. We talk a lot about meanings of words. And I know that for some people at times, this might even seem to be a little boring. In fact, I've even there have been people who even said that they want me to just quote some Bible verses and give an inspiring message and then just let everybody go home. And I know that to be true because I've heard it. But this is so important for us to keep in mind. Because my job is not to give inspiring addresses as much as I would like to do so. My job is to glorify God by faithfully proclaiming what this book says. And what this book says is life. The Bible, as we affirm, is the very word of God. It is not simply an inspiring text. It is an inspired text, meaning God breathed it out. It is His word to us. And it is infallible, meaning it doesn't fail to accomplish what God wants it to accomplish. It is inerrant, which means there is no error contained in it, which means it also is authoritative. That means it has authority over all of our lives and it's sufficient for us. It is enough to reveal to us the things that we need to know about life and godliness and how to have a, be reconciled to God. It is the source of truth for us. It is the source of our doctrines. It reveals to us the very nature and the character of who God is. And in light of that, it helps to reveal how we can be made right with Him. And it also reveals how we are called to live before Him as His children. But the problem is that so many people have turned the Bible into a collection of independent, standalone Bible verses. And I'm all for Bible memorization verse by verse, but sometimes people just memorize these verses and quote them as if they stand alone. For some people, it's become a collection of motivational quotes, forgetting that every passage of Scripture must be understood in the proper context. Not to mention that there are myriad false teachers who twist and distort the Scriptures to suit their own agendas. And I don't say this just to try to scare people. I don't, I don't say this to, to like enhance my own credibility. I don't even say this because I'm trying to cast stones or be divisive. Believe me, that's never my aim. But the Bible itself says that there will be many false teachers in the world. That is what the Bible itself says. That's what, what the Word of God says. That's what Jesus himself said. And what, and, and what they teach isn't simply minor error oftentimes. What they teach is destructive and can lead people away from life and into death. And there have been many false teachers throughout history, and there are still many today. And the thing that they have in common, as Peter said, is they distort the Scriptures to their own destruction. And they do so by removing the verse from verses of, of, of Scripture from their context. And that's why context is so important. That's why grammar is so important. That's why we take the time Sunday after Sunday to trace back its context and review what we've already covered. Because as a minister of the gospel, I want you to understand the context so that you can have the confidence to know that I'm doing my very level best to proclaim to you what God is saying rather than my own personal musings and opinions. Because I want you to understand, my opinion doesn't matter. If there's anything that's irrelevant, it's my opinion. My opinion 
is not what you're here for. What matters and what you're here for is what is God saying to you in his word. And it is my hope that as we ground every scripture in its context, that you will take the time, that you'll have the ability to study for yourself and verify what I'm teaching you and what I'm proclaiming to you and examining and asking the question, is that the truth or is that not the truth? Because you have a responsibility to be Bereans and double check what's being taught. I'm here to help you with your spiritual growth, but you're responsible for it. Yes, I'm the under shepherd in this church under Christ. And yes, it is my job to shepherd your souls as one who's going to have to give an account someday through the preaching of the word of God. And I have been called to this task. I've been gifted for this task. And I spend a lot of time working and studying the text in order to, to perform my task and proclaim the word of God to you. But alas, I am but a man, a jar of clay, which means I am not inerrant. And so it's up to you for your spiritual health to double check and verify everything that I teach and preach to you. And that is why I go to the lengths I do to, ex to explain context and grammar and theology so that you then are equipped on your own to do your part because all of us as Christians are called to be students of the word because it is, it is life to us. And so in that light, the word for is a conjunction. And that means what Paul is saying is this verse is a continuation of an existing thought. So let's just read. So let's just remind ourselves of the context of where we are in the book of Romans. Paul wrote this letter to the, book of, uh, to the Roman church for three basic reasons. The most important of which is to give a clear exposition and an explanation of what the gospel is. Paul sets out to fully unpack what the gospel is, the blessings that the gospel bestows upon us, and how we are to live then in light of the gospel, beginning in verse chapter 12. And in chapter one, Paul says that he's not ashamed of the gospel because the gospel is the power of God for salvation for all who believe, Jew and Gentile. And this is important for us to remember as we go through this text today. The gospel is the power of God to save sinners. And then after this proclamation, he begins to explain what the gospel is by, by talking about the bad news that makes the good news necessary. The fact that mankind is in rebellion to God and under his righteous judgment and wrath. And this includes both those who deny God's very existence and those who fancy themselves as religious. Paul systematically makes clear that no person deserves life and no one has the ability to make themselves right with God by their own efforts. It doesn't matter how good a person thinks they are and it doesn't matter how religious and pious they have become. All have sinned, as Paul says in his summary. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But then Paul, right on the heels of that proclamation, expresses the glorious hope of the gospel. That God himself did for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. He put his own son forward as an atoning sacrifice that satisfies his wrath against us so that we can be justified, not by what we do for God, but by faith in what God has done in Christ. And this is a gift, a gift of his grace. This is the good news that we are justified, that we are justified by grace through faith apart from all works of the law. 
But this good news is so hard for so many people to wrap their heads around that they, that, that they, they struggle to accept it and believe it. In fact, so many people still believe that they must do something. They must do something to merit God's grace, that they have to do something to be deserving of God's love. But Paul, in chapter 3 all the way to the end of chapter 4, is hammering this central truth of the gospel. Over and over and over again, he declares, justification is, God's, is a gift of God's grace made possible by what Christ did for us. And we receive that justification and we are declared righteous in his sight. And we have our sins forgiven simply by faith in Christ. That is the good news that Paul repeats. And this has prompted Paul to use Abraham as an example for us all. Abraham, the physical forefather of the Jewish nation, is also the father of all who have faith in God. He is the living example for us all, Jew and Gentile alike. He is the example that we're to follow. God made a promise to Abraham, and then Abraham believed it. And then Abraham, on that basis, was justified by God. Why? Because he believed the promise that God had made him. He was justified by faith. And and what we saw last week is this promise cannot be accepted on the basis of obedience to the law because obedience to the law was not a condition of the promise that God had made Abraham. He didn't say, I'm going to do this for you if you do this for me. In fact, the promise that God made Abraham, as we saw in Genesis 15, has no conditions at all. God himself ratified the covenant with Abraham by himself. God promised, Abraham believed the promise, and that is that. And so the promise that Abraham, excuse me, the promise that God made Abraham, which Paul interprets to be the promises of the gospel for us, is received by grace through faith apart from works of the law. That is the context that Paul is talking about in today's text. That's the context for us to understand where he's going. In fact, let's just take a moment and back up two verses, and we'll begin reading in verse 13. Paul said, as we saw last week, for the promise of Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law, those who obey the law, who are the heirs or are to be heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. In other words, if you obey, if you have to obey the law to be saved, your faith is pointless and God's promise is worthless because no one, as we've seen time and time and time and time again, can be saved by obedience to the law. And then in that context, Paul says in verse 15, for because the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. Paul is making it clear that the law does not have the power to justify anyone. In fact, he'll even say that later on, that Christ did what the law was powerless to do. And the reason for that is because the law, rather than bringing forgiveness of sins, brings wrath for sins. It brings judgment for sins. The law cannot justify because it is not what the law was created for. You see, the law was not given by God to justify you. That was not its purpose. The law actually has a different purpose. In fact, Paul says in 1 Timothy 1.8, he says the law is good if one uses it 
lawfully. The law has a purpose if we use the law properly and in the right way. And we see this part of this purpose of the law in what Paul says here. He says the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there's no transgression. In other words, the law reveals to us what sin is. It reveals to us what sin is, and because of that, the law is the basis of God's righteous judgment of sin. The law does have a purpose if it's used properly. Now, the reason why this is important for us to consider is because just as legalists want to insist that we must obey the law to be saved, there are those who fall into the extreme opposite camp and say that the law has no relevance for Christians at all. That the law has no meaning for Christians at all. This is called antinomianism, which literally means no law. And many people who confess to be Christians will insist that the law has no bearing on the Christian life whatsoever. They will say that the Christian, say to, for the Christian, the law has no relevance. They will say that the law is for the Jews only in the Old Testament, and we live by grace in the New Testament, which means, right, we have no need of the law, not even the Ten Commandments. But, brothers and sisters, this is simply not true. If you read the full breadth of Scripture, you will find that the law was given for a purpose. In fact, I would argue that you can't have the gospel without the law. Because the law is what points sinners to the gospel. Now hear me. The purpose of the law is not to justify us. Because it can't. But the law was given by God to accomplish something. Right? And, and last week we actually touched on that in our, in our catechism. And I think it's a good place for us to just quickly re-examine that. If you remember, question 89 asked the question, what then is the purpose of the law since the fall? We know that the law can't save. So what's the purpose of it? And the answer was this. The purpose of the law since the fall is to reveal the perfect righteousness of God that His people may know His will for their lives and the ungodly being convicted of their sin may be restrained therein and brought to Christ for salvation. What we see in Paul's letter and in our catechism is God's purpose of the law actually is multifaceted. The first thing that we notice is the law reveals God's righteousness. The law reveals God's righteous character to us and His righteous requirements to have a relationship with Him. You see, the law lets us know who God is and what He requires for us to be in fellowship with Him as we've talked about. What God requires, if you remember, is perfection, perfect righteousness, which means then we need a righteousness that's outside of us because we can't live up to that righteousness. So this reveals the, the righteousness of God, but also notice it reveals God's will for our lives. In Romans chapter 12, later on, we will find out more about this. But he says, beginning in verse 2, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by the testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Our minds are renewed by God's Holy Spirit as we encounter the Word of God. The Word of God and the law reveals to us God's will for our lives. His will for our lives is for us to walk in holiness. This is one of those things that sometimes people stumble over, but it's His will for our lives. In fact, we're told and exhorted as Christians to be holy as our God is holy. The law 
reveals God's will for us to walk in obedience to his commands. The law helps us to see that we are, how, how we are to live, right? not for the glory of ourselves, but we are to live in all that we do for the glory of God. By the, by the law, we know what the will of God is. And as we've also seen, the law reveals what sin is. As in Romans 7, 7, Paul asked the question, what shall we say that the law is sin? By no means. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I, wouldn't, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Even again, as our text says, where there is no law, there's no transgression. The law reveals to us what sin is and what that transgression is. And in light of that, the law then reveals God's judgment of sin. This is the thing that's really uncomfortable for a lot of people to think about and talk about. As people contemplate and think about the love of God, which is true and we ought to think about and hold on to for hope, we forget that there will be an accounting for sin, that God will judge sin. Paul very clearly says the law brings wrath. Romans chapter 1, verse 18, he says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. What is ungodliness? It is sin. It is transgression. It's a violation of God's righteous law. The law reveals that God will judge sin, which means all of mankind is in trouble because as we have discovered, as all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God which means the law's most important purpose. Now we're getting to the, the crux of the matter. The law's most important purpose is that it reveals to us our need for Christ. This is the purpose of the law. The law helps us to see the righteousness of God. Right? This is why I struggle with, with beginning a gospel conversation is God has a wonderful plan for your life. Because so do I. I got a wonderful plan for my life too. Right? But it doesn't help me to see where my need is. I have to begin with what I don't know. What I don't know is that God is righteous, holy, and just. That's where I have to start. It helps us to see the righteousness of God. Then, in light of that, it helps me to see how I'm not righteous. I'm not like Him. It also helps us to see that we have no hope of becoming righteous on our own. Because what's, what's a person's first response when they find out God is holy and they're not? Oh, I gotta do something about it. I gotta try really hard. I gotta work really hard. I gotta obey the rules. I gotta do. I gotta... And it doesn't work. We realize that by the word of God that we can't do it. And so what we realize is that we have no hope of becoming righteous on our own. And what we discover is we need the righteousness of Christ. As Paul tells us in, second, in his second letter to the Corinthians, chapter 5, verses 20 and 21, Therefore we are ambassadors of Christ, making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become, what? The righteousness of God. In Galatians chapter 3, Paul says, The scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. The law reveals our desperate need for Christ. 
You see, the law has a purpose, and that purpose is to point us to the gospel. God uses the law to prepare our hearts so that we can see what we truly need. And, and the law then points us to Christ. The law points to the gospel. The law helps us to see we need justification. We need our sins to be forgiven. We need the alien righteousness of Christ. That is the law's purpose. But as Paul has been arguing, the law cannot get us all the way there. It can point the way but it can't take you down the path. It can help you see the need that you have for the gift and the promise, but it cannot help you grab hold of the gift and the promise. Only faith can do that. As Paul says in verse 16, that is why it depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring. Paul says the promise of our being justified and being counted righteous and having our sins forgiven depends not on our ability to keep the law, but on faith. Let that settle in your mind. It depends on faith. Faith is how we receive what God has promised to give by his grace. Again, as the eminent theologian John Stott wrote, for grace gives and faith takes. Faith's exclusive function is to humbly receive what grace offers. And what God offers by His grace is the forgiveness of all of our sins, past, present, and future. The righteousness of Christ Himself. Reconciliation with God and reconciliation with our fellow man. Adoption into God's family, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and an inheritance that, that cannot be taken away from us. The promise of heaven itself. All of this is promised by God, by His grace. All of this, all of God's promises to us are received by us simply by faith. Our justification depends on humbly receiving what God in His grace offers. And this is so that the promise, as Paul says, must rest on grace and be guaranteed to all His offspring. Now, unpacking that a little bit, we all ought to know by now what Paul's referring to when he says offspring. It's Abraham's offspring. As we said, Paul isn't talking simply about Abraham's physical descendants anymore. He is talking about all who have faith. It's how he's began to interpret the Old Testament in light of the New Testament. That Abraham's offspring are both Jews and Gentiles who have faith. Paul says his offspring are not merely the adherents of the law, but also the ones who, have, who share the faith of Abraham, the Gentiles, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. Paul says the gospel is the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham for those who believe the Jew first and the Greek. It's what we saw in Romans chapter 1, 8 and 17. He also says in Galatians, what a clear promise. If you are Christ's, you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. So Abraham's offspring is all who believe. It is the family of faith. And Paul says, the law can't justify you, 
because it's not its purpose. That is why the promise of God depends on faith in order that the promise may rest, not on what we can do for God, but on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring. Now understand, Paul is saying the promise of God is not simply a promise that is just made in the open air. It is not a promise that's made that may or may not come to pass. The promise that God made is not a question of maybe. The promise that God made is guaranteed. Is the language here. Guaranteed. It is sure to those who, like Abraham, have faith. Abraham's offspring are guaranteed this promise. This is the ultimate kind of promise that you're looking for. This is the promise that you're hoping in. This is the kind of promise we want in our life. This is the promise that's so elusive in our lives, a guarantee. Because the truth is we know that very little in our lives are guaranteed. We're not even guaranteed tomorrow. We're not guaranteed that our family members will be alive this afternoon. I don't say that flippantly, it's just the truth. A friend of mine from high school, and actually from junior high and high school, passed away on, on March 21st, exactly my age. She has a husband and kids and grandkids. Her mom's still alive. She has a career. Lots of people depended upon her. And everyone around her probably lived their life like we do, just assuming She's going to grow old, be a great-grandma someday. Gone. Out of nowhere. Because there is no guarantee. Very little in our lives is guaranteed except the fact that we're going to die. And as people remind us this time of year, pay taxes. But here Paul is saying that the promise of God, the promise foreshadowed in Abraham. Right, rests on grace and depends on faith, is guaranteed. Right. It's guaranteed because it rests upon grace. It rests on God's grace because He's the one who offers it to us. It depends on faith because that's how we receive it. And the reason why it must rest on grace and depend on faith is the truth at the foundation of what makes a guarantee a guarantee. The reason why it's that God created it this way is because of the truth that was at the root of a guarantee, trustworthiness and capability. Because only God is both fully trustworthy enough and capable enough to guarantee this promise. He is the only one who's capable enough to make sure that the promise is ours and that promise will not fail. The promise is guaranteed only if it rests upon God's grace because if it rests in any form or fashion on us, then we're lost. If the promise of God rests upon your ability to make God love you, you have no hope because there's nothing within you that compels God to love you except by his own grace. If the promise rested upon us keeping some rules or the law, we're lost because we cannot keep the law. Even if you reduce the law down to 
to the very simplest form as Jesus did. Love God with all your heart and your neighbor as yourself. Guess what? You can't do it. You don't have the capacity to avail yourself of God's promise. You don't have the capacity to secure justification for yourself by your own efforts. So it cannot rest on works. It must rest upon grace. And praise the Lord that it does rest on grace. I don't know how we don't get to the point where we don't rejoice when we hear things like this. This doesn't move our hearts to to worship God. It rests on His grace. And the reason why that's important, because if it rests on His grace, then it rests on Him and His trustworthiness and His capability. And not only did we see last week that God is trustworthy. We did see that. God Himself made the promise. God Himself set no conditions. We saw that He's trustworthy. Now we see fully that He is capable of guaranteeing His promise, which is what Paul explains in verse 17. Paul says, The God in whom He, Abraham, believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. I've read this verse so many times and I've just kind of like passed over this, but I want you to, to hear this again with fresh ears. God gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. What is Paul getting at here? God is completely capable of keeping His promise because He can do the impossible. God can do anything that He wants to do because He is powerful enough to give life to the things that are dead and bring into existence things that don't even exist. Do you really understand the magnitude of that statement? Paul describes God doing two things that humans have never been able to do. Two things that human beings will never be able to do. Giving life to what is dead and creating something out of nothing. Those are both things, by definition, impossible. Think about this. We cannot bring anything to life. It's impossible for us. We might preserve life for a little bit longer. We might resuscitate things that are really, really near the edge of death. We might even lengthen life. But we can't give life and we can't create it. For all of our technology, for all of our education, for all of our advancements, we have, we're nowhere near being able to give life to anything. I saw scientists touting the fact that they've created these little biological things that are reproducing themselves. But they didn't create anything. All they've done is distort something to bring that about. The life was already there. We've not been able to give life to animals or single-celled beings. Not even part of a cell. All all science can do now is manipulate life and encourage life, distort life, and even take life. But no one but God has the ability to take what is dead and make it alive. But God can, and God does give life to the dead. In fact, that's what it was from the very beginning. That's the truth from the very beginning. In Genesis 2, verse 7, we read, Then the Lord formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. We talk a lot about the creation narrative, but 
Do we take the time to work through what this means for us? Mankind began dead, inert. God first formed him out of inanimate material, which means formed, he was still dead. Lifeless until the breath of God entered him. God inspired into his nostrils the breath of life, and then we began dead and were made alive. Mankind came into being by a supernatural miracle, creative miracle from an all-powerful God. A miracle, by the way, is still felt to this very day. If you have life in you today, that life that you have is an echo of the life that first began in that miraculous moment. Do you understand that? Your life didn't just begin with you. It's a continuation of the life that God gave to Adam. Every breath that you take is a reminder of that first miraculous breath. Every breath that you take is a reminder of God's awesome power to give life to the death. Every breath you take is, is a witness to the awesome and sovereign power of God. Every breath from every human being, believer or unbeliever, is a testimony of God's awesome power to give life to that which was dead. Do you realize that? It's all around us. But that's just the beginning. In the book of John, we read about how Jesus' friend Lazarus had died and laid in the tomb for four days. Four days before Jesus came. And Jesus went to the tomb and instructed them to roll away the stone. And they said, I don't know, but that's a good idea, Jesus. He's going to stink really bad because he's already decomposing. But they did what he commanded. And then Jesus called Lazarus to come out and he came out. And Jesus said this was for the glory of God. And so the Son of God might be glorified through it. God gave life to a man whose body was completely dead and whose body had already began to rot and decompose. So not only did he bring life back to his body, he reversed the process of decay, right? the process of corruption in his body, which is a sign that God has the power not only to give life to inanimate objects, but to undo the corruption that plagues them. Which is what Christ accomplished on the cross. Christ on the cross shouted, it is finished, declaring the truth that the curse of corruption was at an end. Sin and death had been defeated in Christ. And Christ in his humanity died on the cross, having drunk down the full cup of God's wrath on our behalf. And the veil then between God and man was torn. But three days later, his broken, lifeless body was made alive once more, which is what we're going to celebrate in just a few weeks. The resurrection, the, mir the mir miracle of God giving life back to his body undoing the corruption. The resurrection is proof. The, the, the resurrection is proof that Jesus is what he claimed to be, God in the flesh, and that he can do what he promised to do, which is to save us from our sin and the wrath of God. 
and that by faith we receive the promise of a true life, eternal life, because God has the power to give life to our cold, dead, corrupt hearts of stone. In fact, in Ephesians chapter 2, I think is the greatest illustration of this. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. You weren't spiritually sick. You weren't spiritually incapacitated. You were dead, lifeless, like the, the dust of the earth with a dead heart of stone, worse off than Lazarus, dead. We were dead in our sins, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at son, in, in the work at sons of disobedience, among whom we've all once lived in the passions of our flesh, caring about the desires of the body and the mind, and were by our very nature children of God's wrath, like the rest of mankind, helpless, hopelessly dead to God. Then verse 4, but God, sovereign and almighty, being rich in his mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead and our trespasses made us alive together, gave life to the dead, made us alive with Christ by grace, you have been saved. Christian, you want a reason to hope today? You want a reason to be encouraged today? If you're in Christ, you are walking, talking, living, breathing miracle of God. Not only do you have the breath of life in your physical lungs, but you have the image of God stamped on your being. Your heart of stone has been completely replaced with the heart of flesh, and you have been born again by the power of God. You were a new creation. You were dead, but now alive by the power of God of God's gospel. Because God in whom we trust, the God on whom the promise rests, gives life to the dead. But notice he also says that God calls into existence the things that don't exist. The magnitude of that statement should be beyond, is beyond our comprehension. The known universe is over 96 billion light years across. Again, number you can't even put in your head. The entire cosmos and everything in it leapt into existence out of nothing by the very command of God. Everything that exists now and has ever existed at some point in the finite past didn't exist. It was all created by God out of nothing. And God, by His Word, called it into being. Every molecule, every quark, every hair on your head. For some of you, that's more than others. Every mountain, every stream, every star, every galaxy, every wave, every particle, all of it was brought into existence by God Himself. The promise of justification and righteousness and the forgiveness of our sins, the promise that we hold on to with great hope, rests on the grace of that God. The God who is fully trustworthy and completely capable to do what he promised to do because he has the power to give life to the dead and call into existence the things that don't exist and to justify sinners while at the same time remain 
himself just. As Paul said, he is both just and the justifier of those who have faith. And he also has the power to reconcile his people to himself by his grace through faith. This is the staggering truth of the gospel that we all were his enemies in open rebellion to God. And he then brought us in and made us not people that we have a truce agreement with God with. He made us family. We are reconciled to God as family. Paul is passionately declaring the truth of the, about the gospel that all of mankind has been cut off from God because of sin and the wrath and the fury of God burns white hot against sin and those who walk in that sin and that we are hopeless in our own abilities to change that but God by His own mercy according with the love that He loved us did everything for us so that we can be then reconciled to Him. He made payment for our sins by putting forward his own son as an atoning sacrifice by his blood. Christ lived the perfect righteous life and earned for us a righteous standing before God the Father we could never earn. And then by grace holds out the promise of salvation, the promise of justification, the promise of righteousness, the promise of having all of our sins forgiven. God holds the promise out to us by his grace. And we take hold of of that promise. We receive that promise, not by what we can do for God, but by our faith in Him to keep that promise. And the promise that God makes is guaranteed. If you need something to hang your hat on this week, the promises of God are guaranteed to us if we receive it by faith. And the reason why it's guaranteed is because God is trustworthy and true and because God is powerful and He can do the impossible, which means He has the capability and the ability to do what He promises to you. He has the ability to keep all of His promises to you, including, I will never leave you or forsake you. Those who believe in me will never be put to shame. I will, good, I will come back for you because I've prepared a place for you. He has the ability to keep all of his promises to you. So trust in him today. And if you trust in him, then trust in him all the more. Hold on to the great promise that God has made you. Is the guarantee, is the guarantee that you're a child of God and the hope that you one day then will be in his presence forever that all things one day will be made right as he's promised and that you will then forever stand in his presence as his child, glorifying in him, experiencing joy unending as, as Christ says that the former things have passed away. We pray for you. You've been listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead, a production of First Baptist Church in Boron, California. Our website address is fbcboron.org. And would you please consider partnering with us financially as we work to share the hope and the gospel of Jesus Christ with our community and our world.